Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. John's Gospel begins with a prologue of sorts that envisions the eternal Son of God, the Word, he calls Him, the Word of God, who was with God and who was God, coming into the world as a human being. So God, the eternal Son, takes on human form and nature and enters the world of broken, fallen humanity. And he comes to bring his light and truth into the world. And John tells us in John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So in this introduction to John's gospel, he tells us what's going to happen. The eternal Son of God is going to come into the world as a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He's going to bring his light into the world, and he's going to come to his own people, and his own people will reject him. In our journey through John's gospel, and as we walk with Jesus toward the cross, we find ourselves at the moment where the people of God, the people of Israel, reject Jesus in the most stark and alarming of ways. So if you'll turn to to the 19th chapter, we're walking with Jesus now toward the cross. He's been with his disciples on the final evening. They shared a Passover meal together on Thursday night. He spoke to them about what would happen, that he would be leaving them and they would be scattered and that Peter was going to deny that he even knew him and all this that in his absence they would find the world will hate them, but he's going to send them the Holy Spirit to comfort them and strengthen them and equip them to carry on his ministry. So he's given them this sort of final farewell speech, and then he's been arrested. Judas, that disciple of his for three years who had lived and walked and ate and uh, done ministry with Jesus, has handed him over uh, into the hands of those who are seeking his life. And so he's now in their custody. He has appeared before the high priest. Caiaphas is the the current high priest and his father-in-law, Annas. Jesus appeared before both of them. John only records for us his appearance before Annas. However, Annas challenged him, questioned him about his teaching and his followers and found no suitable way to uh, charge him. And so now they've led him before the Roman governor, Pilate. And we saw the first encounter with Pilate last week as Pilate sort of tried to figure out what what Jesus had done that was worth condemning him to death for. He didn't find anything in uh, in that encounter. And that encounter continues in our story today. So I think what I'll do is read for you 
verses 1 through 16, or at least the first part of verse 16. And then we'll kind of go piece by piece through the story and observe what we can. So beginning of verse 1, John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Really a stunning scene if you can look at it without the over-familiarity that years of, for those of us who have been raised in the church or been around the, the Bible for any length of time, have probably heard this story over and over. You've probably seen the movies that depict Jesus before Pilate and this crowd shouting, crucify him. And so there's a, there's a, a layer of just, I know this, I've been here, I'm familiar with it, that you have to kind of try to peel back to really get the, the drama, the depravity of what's happening here. The rejection of Jesus by his own people is tragic and stunning in its boldness and in its godlessness, which we'll see as we walk through these verses. So at the beginning... Pilate had attempted in the, in the last verses from last week to release to them Jesus. He said, we have a custom of releasing one prisoner to you on Passover weekend, so why don't I release Jesus to you? Because he hasn't done anything 
that's worthy of death. And they said, no, give us Barabbas, right? This robber, this murderer, this insurrectionist. They prefer to have this guy released so that Jesus might be uh, remain in custody and in fact be sentenced to death. And so he attempted to do that and they wouldn't hear of it. Nope, give us Barabbas and you take Jesus. And so uh, the first verse of chapter, of chapter 19 tells us that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now we got to kind of ask the question and this gets this week and next as we're walking with Jesus through his suffering and death. There's a, there's a certain level of just sort of like squeamishness graphicness that I'm, I'm not going to be like gross unnecessarily, but this is horrendous torture and mistreatment that Jesus is enduring. And it's a necessary part of understanding his suffering and what he experienced for, our, for us and for our salvation. And so just bear that in mind as we go. So the, the, the flogging of Jesus here could have been one of three levels of beatings that Rome would give to criminals or troublemakers of various kinds. And so there's a distinct uh, Latin word that, that related to these levels of beating. The, the lowest level is called fustigatio. And this was sort of a not severe beating, and it was kind of intended just to teach a lesson. So somebody maybe is a troublemaker, and they thought, We'll just beat them up a little bit, rough them up a little, so that they'll kind of learn, okay, maybe I shouldn't do that again. And so that's kind of the lowest level. And then there's a more severe beating called flagellatio, which would, was intended to leave a mark, so to speak. This would do more physical harm and be a stronger message, a stronger punishment from the state for more serious crimes. And then there's a third level, of beating called verberatio. I'm butchering these Latin words, I'm sure. But this third level of beating was so severe that it was only and always accompanied with a death sentence. In other words, they did not anticipate the victim recovering from this beating. It was a part of his death sentence, and usually it would culminate in crucifixion. We know that Jesus will receive that level of abuse, that level of beating at his final sentencing. But it seems that at this point in the story, because Pilate is still trying to release Jesus, his, strategy, his, his plan is still to release Jesus back to the crowd so that he won't have to sentence him to death. It makes more sense that what he's doing here is that lower level of, of beating, that maybe the, the fustigatio, which is a less severe beating intended to teach a lesson and maybe kind of satisfy the bloodlust of the crowd. Maybe they'll think, okay, well, that's enough. He's, surely he will, he'll stop what he was doing that we didn't like. He's learned his lesson. And so that seems to be Pilate's uh, approach. And that's clarified in Luke 23, verse 16, where Pilate says explicitly to them, I will punish him and then I will let him go. So that seems to be what's going on here. And so then this scene in verse 2 and 3, cruel as it is, blasphemous as it is, is the lowest level of abuse and beating that Rome would dispense. And so the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns, perhaps from the date palm tree that had thorns that could be up to 12 inches long. So this is a serious... Uh, a serious uh, 
crown of, of thorns made to look like the sort of regal wreath crown that, uh, that victors in battle and Caesars themselves might wear. And they would press the thorns down into the victim's head, obviously intending to create wounds and bleeding. And they put a purple robe on him, which was the color of royalty. This is what a king might wear. And so they find this purple robe and drape him in it. They've got this rugged crown of thorns mashed into his head. And they begin to mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And of course, as is often the case in John's Gospel, they speak better than they know. This is indeed the king of the Jews, but they are mocking and berating him and striking him with their hands. Heartbreaking to see. So now, Pilate, after having Jesus beaten in this way, brings him back out to the crowd. And his hope is that they'll go, oh wow, he's, he's pitiful. We've really, they've roughed him up. Surely he's going to stop telling people that he's the son of God and all this stuff. And so they'll let him go. And even that phrase where he says, behold the man, might have the sense of, look at this poor fool. Look at this guy. He's bruised, he's puffy, he's bleeding, beaten up in this crown of thorns and this robe. Is this guy really worth all the trouble? You're really afraid of this guy as a threat to you in some way? So he brings him out, sad sight, says behold the man how could he possibly be a threat to you and he hopes that this beating of Jesus and his presentation before the crowd in mock robe and crown would stir up maybe some empathy for Jesus from the crowd perhaps satisfy their bloodlust but alas he has underestimated the brutality and depth of their bloodlust and so they say in verse 6 when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out. You get the sense, as soon as he came out, and they see him, crucify him. They haven't had enough. Crucify him. Again, lest we just let over-familiarity with the story keep us from looking intently at what Jesus endures. Crucifixion was the most severe form of execution the ancient world had to offer. It was the most dreadfully painful and shamefully humiliating manner of death conceived of. And honestly, in 2,000 years or so of history since then, I'm not sure that humanity has come up with much to match it. Indeed, an, an adjective had to be invented to describe its horrors. Excruciating. If you've ever used the word I'm in excruciating pain. What that means is from the cross. That is the definition of the kind of strongest word we can think of when something really, really hurts. We're saying it hurts like the cross. That's what that word means. There is no deeper, more destructive, more torturous form of punishment that somebody could endure. Consider then the heart bent on inflicting this suffering on another human being and indeed upon an innocent one. 
How dark, depraved, and distorted must that heart be which campaigns with ferocious intensity for the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Not satisfied with a beating. Crucify him. It's chilling. But look one level deeper. It was our sin that sent him there. Isaiah tells us he was bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity. So it's easy for us to look on with moral outrage as the Jewish leaders lobby for his crucifixion, but in their bloodthirsty cries, we hear our own voices. We see our own sin and unrighteousness that led Jesus to that place. Well, Pilate is dismissive. He doesn't, he doesn't want to do what they're saying. And so he says, you take him and crucify him yourself. Now, he's not legitimately handing him over to them and, and suggesting that they should actually go crucify him because they can't. Crucifixion is something that Rome oversees and executes um, and is not something that the Jews could have just gone and done by themselves. So he's not legitimately handing over uh, his authority to judge and to render a crucifixion sentencing. He's just dismissing what they're saying. Crucify him, crucify him. He's like, that, you do it. Like, it's just not worth that. He's not guilty. I don't see in him anything worthy of this kind of punishment. So he kind of dismisses it. And so the Jewish leaders argue back. They're not content to go, oh, Pilate doesn't want to do it, so I guess our plot is over. Nope, they've got an argument. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. That is, he has made himself out to be the son of God. Because obviously, they will not buy that. They do not believe that Jesus is the son of God. So the fact that Jesus has presented himself as the son of God to them is blasphemy. And the law that they're referring to is from Leviticus 24, verse 16, which says, whoever blasphemes the name of God shall be put to death. And so they see in Jesus, who's presented himself as the Son of God, this charge of blasphemy. We have a law that says he's got to die because he's made himself out to be the Son of God. And so now they appeal to their own laws and sort of asking Pilate to enact or or act upon their own judgment of him that he's broken their laws but this has a different sense with Pilate it sits with him a little bit differently uncomfortably it tells us when he heard this he was even more afraid and I think his fear is superstitious in other words he might be found dealing with a, a divine man or somebody blessed by the gods or something like that so if that's the kind of person that jesus is and they and romans did have a category for that kind of a person maybe the gods had specially blessed or smiled upon this man and so now he's like getting in the middle of this guy's life and he doesn't want to be found sentencing to death someone who is like a divine person or blessed by the gods in some way and that fear was fed probably by his wife Because actually Matthew tells us that his wife had come privately to Pilate and said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. 
because I have been troubled greatly in a dream because of him. I don't know what the dream was exactly. Seems like God is communicating something. I'm not sure she gets the message, but she goes to Pilate and says, you shouldn't do anything with this guy. You should just wash your hands and back away. Because, and she calls him a righteous man. So Pilate's superstitious fear that perhaps he's treading into territory uh, regarding a divine person, again, much less than he possibly could know, leads him to question Jesus one more time. And so now he goes back to Jesus in private and he asks him, where are you from? Which is interesting. Are you from heaven or from God in some way? Any divine origin whatsoever on your part? And of course, we know what Jesus' answer to that has been throughout John's gospel. Over and over, I'm from God. God sent me. I'm here from the Father. I only do what the Father tells me to do. I am the Son of God, right? This is, he's been over and over and over and over throughout this gospel, publicly presenting himself as coming from God the Father. But when Pilate asks, where are you from? Jesus doesn't say. Jesus won't give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, look at verse 10. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Sort of makes you chuckle. At one level, you've got this Roman governor standing before the king of the universe and saying, in effect, don't you know who I am? Right? I'm kind of a big deal. Right? I, I, I could release you, or I could kill you, and you're not even cooperating with me in an interview. Why won't you talk to me? Don't you know the authority that I have over you? And of course, we know who Jesus is. The reader of John's gospel knows the background, and you can see a ridiculous irony there. Pilate has no grounds to stand before Jesus and say, don't you know that I've got authority over you? So Jesus does respond to this. Jesus says in verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Now, the it that had been given to Pilate is not authority. Just grammatically, the way this sentence is constructed in the original language, the, the, what has been handed to Pilate or given to Pilate is this unfolding of events, this situation, if you will. So Jesus is, is, is saying, he's not necessarily making a blanket statement here about all earthly authority. All earthly authority is derivative or derived from divine authority, which is true and biblical. That would be a true point to make. But what he's saying in effect here is the only reason that you are in a position to render judgment over me is that God put you there. God in his providence placed you in that position through this unfolding of events, which points us back once again to God's control of these events. Though it looks to the casual observer like this is falling apart. The wheels are coming off of this thing, Jesus. You better do something. You're about to be sentenced to death if you don't speak up or something doesn't change. It looks like evil is winning here. 
But Jesus gives us a reminder. No, this is all part of the plan. This is God's doing. And so he says, you only have this role to play that God gave you to play. It's the only reason you have any authority at this moment to say, I can go free or I must die. And that's why he can say that the sin of Caiaphas, I think is probably who's in view there where he says, the, the one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Caiaphas, the high priest, that's the leader of the Sanhedrin, who had put into motion this plot to kill Jesus. He can say he has the greater sin than that of Pilate. He doesn't absolve Pilate. He doesn't say that Pilate has no moral accountability or responsibility in this situation. But he does seem to say that those who actively worked for the wrongful arrest and uh, uh, accusation and execution of Jesus have the greater moral responsibility here. And then verse 12 tells us, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. So whatever Pilate sees or hears in Jesus, he's convinced this guy is not guilty of a crime. This guy is not in need of or deserving of a death penalty. He is innocent. And I think to consider the original readers of John's gospel, the, the mostly Jewish audience to whom John is writing, if you kind of see it from their perspective, the fact that Pilate, a Roman authority, is the one who recognizes and advocates for Jesus' innocence would have probably been a striking offense to, the, to John's original audience. The fact that a Roman authority is the one who sees clearly Jesus is innocent. Now, Pilate doesn't see beyond that. He doesn't affirm anything about Jesus' divine origins or believe in him, per se. But he recognizes Jesus is an innocent man. Meanwhile, the Jewish leaders are charging him with all of these false uh, accusations and are lobbying, campaigning for his crucifixion. It would have probably struck them funny, so to speak, that Pilate is the one who got this right. Indeed, he's the one who sees this more clearly. So once again, I think just as John is writing to it's his first readers, and then obviously down through the ages, there, there's this subtle way that, that he intends and I think expects people to be offended, kind of affronted by their own brokenness, their own sin. You mean a Roman governor got this right and we didn't? So Pilate seeks to release him. But the Jews are not done arguing. They cry out in verse 12, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Now this is curious. Curious indeed that a group of Jewish religious leaders would argue this way. They're not fans of Rome. You'll recall that 
the land of Palestine where the Jews live is under Roman occupation, which they regard as a judgment from God. And their hope for the Messiah to come had been that the Messiah would come as a conquering hero and drive the Romans out and give them back their land. They ain't fans of Rome. So that the Jewish leaders would say, you're no friend of Caesar if you let this guy go, is blatantly hypocritical. There's not an ounce of sincerity in their plea whatsoever. This is pure political maneuvering, plain and simple. Yet it is their victory-clenching argument. If you don't let this guy go, you are not Caesar's friend. In fact, they say everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And in the Roman economy, there's room for only one dude at the top. So anybody who says, yeah, I'm a king, we got to stamp that guy out right now. And his family, anybody who knows him, anybody who followed him, anybody who ever considered recognizing him as a king, they got to go. Because Caesar alone is king, right? That's, that's the Roman economy. That's the system. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Well, Jesus already admitted that he's a king. Yeah, he told Pilate, it's a different kind of kingdom. My kingdom's not of this world. And I think Pilate recognized, yeah, I don't think he's a political threat, which is why he's trying to release him. Nevertheless, there you've got this very public argument now. If you don't let this guy go who says he's a king, you're no friend of Caesar. And that hits Pilate where it really hurts. Pilate knows he's stuck. He finds no guilt in Jesus, but if it appears even to Caesar as though he has let the political threat of an insurgence go on unabated, his job and probably his life are in jeopardy. And in the end, Pilate's much more interested in saving his own skin than he is in dealing justly. And so, with the Jews arguing, you must be Caesar's friend and release him. Verse 13, we get a a decisive Pilate. Verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. So he's been back in private in his quarters. Now he's brought him out before the people again. And he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabatha, which just means raised place. So this is a formal, official place from which he would render judgments, pronounce verdicts. And so he's now seated on this judgment seat. And John includes for us this little detail, which seems random at first in its placement in verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover and was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour is an estimation, just midday. There's been a lot of work trying to pair this with with the other synoptic gospels and try to see how the timeline works out. And if you just have to figure, everyone's just estimating. It's bright, the sun's up, must be middle of the day, about the sixth hour, okay? So we don't want to get too precise. Oh, that means it was right at noon that this happened. That's not the point. But middle of the day, on the day of preparation of the Passover. Now, this is Passover week. This is the annual feast of Passover that's been going on in Jerusalem all week long. We know that Jesus and his disciples already ate their Passover meal on Thursday night. 
So the preparation going on here is probably not for Passover meal, but for the Sabbath, which is the day to follow. Sabbath is on Saturday, begins at sundown on Friday. And this is the day of preparation for Sabbath. And the Passover Sabbath is a special Sabbath, just by the nature of where it falls within the calendar. It is Passover week, which is this kind of heightened time of religious zeal and memory and renewal. And it's the Sabbath of that particular week. And so John includes this detail to remind us of a providential irony. God is telling two stories at once here, in a, in a sense. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist identified him, is being sentenced to death for sinners at the very time when the people of Israel are commemorating God's deliverance of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And especially the salvation of their firstborn sons through the lamb's blood on their doorpost. That's what they remember at Passover, is that the blood of a lamb spared their lives. And at this very time, Jesus, the lamb of God, is being sentenced to death. It is no mere coincidence that Jesus' crucifixion would take place during Passover week. God is making a statement. Here is the true Passover lamb. Here is full and final deliverance from bondage to sin and death. So Jesus is now before the crowd. Pilate is sitting in his judgment seat. And the crowd cried out again in verse 15, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! One more time. And Pilate said to them, he doesn't have any, any other arguments to make. He says, shall I crucify your king? Which is thick with mockery. He's mocking not just Jesus, but the, the crowd. Because obviously they've rejected him. This is your king. This is the guy that says he's the king of the Jews. Yours. So am I going to crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. That is a shocking declaration. On the part of the leaders of Jewish spiritual life, those who are responsible for teaching and leading the people of Israel to God, to atone for their sins through sacrifice and to honor Him and live lives of obedience and holiness and all the things that the Jewish leaders are supposed to do for the people of God, they stand before a Roman governor, with their Messiah before them. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. This is not just a rejection of Jesus as Israel's Messiah. It is that. It's not less than that. But it's more than that. It's deeper than that. This is a rejection of Israel's messianic hope entirely. We have no intention of ever seeing God delivering his people. We have no king but Caesar. And indeed, it's a rejection of God himself. God had been king over them. God had established his own rule over the people of Israel long ago. Back in the book of Judges, in Judges 8, 23, the people of Israel have come to Gideon, 
who's one of these judges, who's just delivered them, helped deliver them from the Midianites, and they ask him to become their king. Will you become our king and your son reign over us? And Gideon's response is, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, for the Lord himself will rule over you. So even in the period of judges, before there's any formal kingship in Israel, God is established as the king. He rules. He reigns. God is your king. But the people of Israel, even in that day, ultimately reject his authority and refuse to live under his rule. And the book of Judges ends with this slogan. The very last verse in Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's tragic. It's depraved. It's godless. The way of life for the people of Israel, the people of God, are, is we have no king. We're not under God's rule. We're not under his authority. I do what I want. I do what's right in my own eyes. And that's what the chief priests are declaring here before Pilate. We have no king but Caesar. Reminded of John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so having rejected Jesus, indeed rejected God's kingship over them entirely, verse 16, Pilate does what he must do, politically speaking. So he delivered him over to them, that is to the Roman soldiers, to be crucified. Now, it's easy to read these verses and to hear this story with a pointing finger at the Jewish leaders and their rebellion. Man, did they get this wrong. Yes, they did. But that's not what John would have us to see. More importantly, that's not what the Holy Spirit would have us to see. We don't come to the story and just go, man, those Jews, they sure botched this one. We need to hear this story with an eye on our own hearts. We need to be ready to see our own tendency toward rebellion. Our own inclination toward self-preservation. Our own reluctance to submit to the authority of God in our lives. I think there's a few ways that we can do that. There's a few ways that we reject God's authority. Here's just a, a couple of them. First, we can swear allegiance to the wrong kingdom. I think this is common, a common pitfall for us. We can swear allegiance to the wrong kingdom. Listen, we're citizens first of the kingdom of God. We're citizens first of that kingdom that's not of this world that Jesus told Pilate about. We're citizens of a kingdom who, whose full and final realization is in the future at the return of Christ. It hasn't happened yet. It's coming. It's growing. He's building it, but it's not yet. But the, that citizenship transcends all earthly, political, socioeconomic boundaries and allegiances and alliances that we could form here. We are citizens of earth. We're citizens of an earthly kingdom. There's nothing wrong with that. But we often get the cart before the horse here. We often find partisan politics, nationalistic pride coming at times, I think, even before our allegiance to the kingdom of God. 
when the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the United States come into conflict with one another, there can be a tendency for us to favor the earthly kingdom that we can see and to minimize the heavenly kingdom that is more spiritual, more invisible, harder to to determine. One tangible expression of that, one tangible way that comes out, for example, God's word says, regard the alien among you as a citizen and love him as yourself. And we go, not on my dime. So we align ourselves with politicians and party platforms that are very inhospitable because that's more important to us. It's our tax dollars. They got to work harder. We have political arguments, social arguments that we could make in favor of those platforms and those positions, even if and to the point that it leads us to conflict with the teaching of God's word. Regard the sojourner and the alien among you as a citizen because you too were strangers and aliens in Egypt. That's what he tells the people of Israel. Just one practical little way that I think we can show our allegiances to the wrong kingdom. When the kingdom values are at odds with one another, we ought to side with the kingdom of Christ every time. We can swear allegiance to the wrong kingdom. Another way I think we can reject God's kingship in our lives is to give attention to the wrong authority. What has authority in your life? What do you let dictate your opinions and beliefs and your choices and how you spend your money and invest in relationships? We can, we can give ourselves to all kinds of different authorities, worldly wisdom, cultural norms, our own experience. Often we elevate that. Well, I've seen that, therefore that's true every time. We elevate our own experience at times. But Jesus mediates his kingship in our lives through his word. It's the Bible alone that is supposed to have that place of authority in the life of a follower of Jesus. That's where he speaks. That's where he tells us his heart. That's where he shows us what his kingdom is about. It's in the scriptures. This is to be our authority. We are to yield ourselves to the teachings of scripture. So to the extent that we neglect it, or disobey it, we reject God's authority in our lives. It's that simple. If we are not people of the Bible, we are not living under the authority of God the King. So when the Scripture calls us to something and we disregard it, either because we haven't read it, or I don't want to think about it, or I don't like it and I don't want to do it, we're rejecting God as our King. We have no King but fill in the blank. Myself my culture, whatever it is. So we can give attention to the wrong authority. One final way that I think we can reject God's kingship is to neglect our place in the family of God. Because if God mediates his authority through the word, he exercises that authority among the people of God, the people of the word, namely the church. So to be under the authority of God, the king, is to live rightly in relation to his authority mediated through the scriptures. And the place where that happens is in the church. 
the people of God, bought by the blood of this crucified Christ. We experience it together in community. We share in the life and death and resurrection of Christ together in relationship as we encourage each other, as we challenge each other, as we study the scriptures together to learn more about what God wants from us and more of what God has done for us in Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you intend to live under his authority, that is to be an active and invested part of the church of Jesus Christ, a local church, not just the invisible, yeah, I'm part of the big C universal church, but I don't play any active role in any local community. That is not living under the authority of King Jesus because he lives out his authority through the people that he's bought by his blood, the people who are devoted to his word to living it and learning it and sharing it and and living it out together. There's more ways. There's countless ways, creative ways that we can reject the authority of God in our lives. I'm quite sure of it. John Calvin once said that the human heart is an idle factory. There's no limit to the ways we can devise to mute God's voice in our hearts and in our lives. But those are three, I think, big categories, big common ones. We can swear allegiance to the wrong kingdom, give attention to the wrong authority, and neglect our place in the family of God. Those are just three big, obvious ways. And the converse of that is, let's make sure that as the people of God, those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, that we are investing in those ways. That we are swearing allegiance to his kingdom even when it comes into conflict with every other earthly alliance that we have. Let's make sure that we're devoting ourselves to his authority in the word of God, learning it, studying it, memorizing it, encouraging each other with it. And let's make sure that we are invested in the local church through lives and relationships that are shaped by the gospel and by his word. We began by seeing, and I think what we've seen expressed throughout this passage is the rejection of Jesus by his people. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Oh, but listen to this good news, just the very next verse. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Praise God for his kindness. Whoever receives him, whoever believes in him, is welcomed into his family forever. He gives us the right to become children of God. Oh, would that be our heart? Would that be our posture before God? Not that we have no king but Caesar. But Lord Jesus, we welcome you. We receive you and your authority in our lives. And so we would be children of God. Let me pray.